Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. The Lord continued that statement in the great Sermon on the Mount by saying, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Concerning the 23rd verse of that passage in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, the late Burton Kaufman wrote these words. This verse, this verse, he says, contains without doubt one of the most terrible thoughts in the scriptures. This blessed warning from Christ should stop every man short and suddenly till he is sure beyond all possibility of deception that he is truly doing Christ's will. And truly it is a sobering statement. To think that you have been serving the Lord and to spend your life in that situation only to find at the judgment that you are disapproved of the Lord and you hear those words, I never knew you, depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. Self-deception. A false peace. It is oh so prevalent in the world in which we live today. There are those who have deceived themselves, who have embraced a peace that is not the peace that surpasses all understanding, as Paul writes about, a peace about which the Lord willing will speak next Sunday morning, but a false peace, a self-deception. And This morning I'd like to think with you about that for a few minutes and look at some things that may be responsible for producing within so many people today, yes, even many in the Lord's church today, a false peace, a sense of security that will bring about a surprise in the judgment for which they are not prepared. False prophets produce false peace. And there are many false prophets in our world today as there have been. You remember what Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 6, 14? God through the prophet Jeremiah said they have also healed, he's speaking now of these false prophets, they have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, made them feel better. Giving them a false peace, in other words. Saying what, Lord? Saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. And that's where we find ourselves today, and that's where we are in the Lord's church in many places. Those who have imbibed false teachers and preachers and prophets, as you were, not true prophets, there are no prophets today, but false ones, who themselves may be self-deceived, and yes, at times may believe, and I do not doubt that they sincerely believe they are doing God's will. That's what the passage in Matthew 7 indicates. The surprise among those who will stand before God and Christ in judgment and say, but Lord, did we not do this or that? Fully expecting to be saved. I don't doubt that there are many today who believe their lying signs and wonders are truly indications of God's approval of them. I didn't read the story but the headline about the funeral that is now planned or being conducted for the snake handling preacher who obviously believed, I'm sure, with all of his heart 
that his understanding of the signs that followed them as they take up servants, serpents and as they drink poison applied to him today. It has no application tragically to him today and he's dead as a result of poisonous snake bite. Do you doubt that he believed that what he was doing was truly what God wanted him to do? I don't doubt it. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 2, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. I don't doubt that this man who is soon to be buried or has just been buried from dying of snake bite had a strong delusion. God didn't send that to him in the sense that he perpetrated it upon him, but he allowed it as he will allow those who refuse to accept the truth to follow the path that they so choose to follow. False prophets, false prophets produce false peace. And there are many today, even in the Lord's church, who are saying it's no big deal. Frank Chesser, very fine writer, brilliant writer, and great gospel preacher, wrote a book entitled The Spirit of Liberalism in which he depicted the liberalism that is affecting the Lord's church today. And the phrase that he said is used repeatedly by those who would take us into apostasy and have led many into apostasy is that very phrase, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. And that's what I was struck with just this week. That's what I'm to speak about Tuesday night at College Grove. Changes in the church. And I don't think they have in mind the positive changes in the church. They want me to deal with those things that have crept into the church that are anything but positive. And just this week, just this week, I received word that a congregation in Lubbock, Texas has now added the instrument to their worship. And the very fine Southside congregation in Lubbock where Tommy Hicks is the preacher has called upon brethren to mark and have no fellowship with this group that has now brought in the instrument. I believe it's the Monterey Church of Christ. And you know what was equally disturbing? It was very disturbing to read about that, obviously, and tragic. But it was equally disturbing to see the comments that were posted following the story that appeared in the Lubbock newspaper. I don't remember the name of the paper, but it was on the front page, uh, I think it was, of that paper where this congregation has brought in instrumental music and the community is now made fully aware of it, but the comments to the story were so deeply troubling. Some from those who are members of the church who said, I grew up in the Church of Christ and I can assure you that the majority of those in the Church of Christ don't have a problem with mechanical instruments of music. More than once, I read statement after statement to the effect that if you took a survey, in effect, they were saying you'd find that today most members of the church don't really think that instrumental music is a salvation issue. 
It's no big deal. There was one comment made by someone who was talking about the fact that, that uh, it's not a big deal from the standpoint that what really counts is, is true worship. True worship. Well, true worship counts. It sure does. But true worship is worship God in spirit and in truth, not just the way I think God wants me to worship or wants me to be happy worshiping Him. And we'll get to that point as we talk about false premises. But that's a tragedy indeed. And if those who've made those comments are anywhere near correct, and it is true that a growing number of members of the Lord's body would not view instrumental music as a salvation issue, then they need to go back and read their Bibles very carefully. And that's the problem today anyway, is that far too many, far too many have imbibed the false promises of the false prophets. And that's another thing that leads to false peace, false promises. Listen to what Peter said about it in 2 Peter 2.19. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. 2 Peter 2. 19. In fact, you look at the entire chapter of 2 Peter. That's uh, chapter 2. 2 Peter uh, deals in chapter 2 with the false prophets and their promise of liberty. But the false promises from the false prophets produce a false peace that will lead those who embrace them to eternal perdition. And we have among us today the modern day change agents who decry legalism as they call it, and they promise liberty. They do not want legalism as they view it. They want liberty, and they've deceived many in the church with their pseudo-promises. And Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, graphically describes the end of those who are taken in by those promises. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world... Through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. False promises produce a false peace. And what a tragedy that is. And false premises produce a false peace, and this may be one of the most pertinent points that we could consider when we look at a false peace, and that is the false premise that leads to that false peace. A premise is a proposition upon which an argument is based or from which a conclusion is drawn. You have a premise, you draw your conclusion from that premise. And many people draw wrong conclusions in the realm of religion because they begin with a false premise. For example, someone says, God is good. Condemning people to hell is bad. Therefore, God cannot condemn people to hell. Now there's a little syllogism. God is good. God is good. Condemning people to hell is bad. Therefore, God cannot condemn people to hell. What's wrong with that argument? It has a false premise, doesn't it? The minor premise is false. God is good. That's true. That's the major premise. The minor premise is condemning people to hell is bad. That's the minor premise, and that's false. 
because allowing people to condemn themselves to hell as a result of God's justice as well as His mercy is not bad. God really doesn't condemn anyone to hell. People condemn themselves. But God will allow us the freedom of choice to ultimately be an eternity in hell. Why? Because He is not good? No. He is good. But because He is good and because He is perfect in every aspect of His nature, He requires, He requires that we respond to His goodness as He has set forth in His Word. In New Testament times, there were those who could cast out demons. There were those in New Testament times who could perform other signs as a result of having the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. They had that ability. But if they concluded, listen to this, if they concluded that God approved of them simply because they had this power from God to cast out demons, their conclusion was based upon a false premise. The false premise being, well, look what I can do. Therefore, God must approve me. No, that had nothing to do. That had nothing to do with their living their lives. They had to stir up that gift for one thing, as we have often talked about. They had that gift. Many of them had those gifts, but they had to stir up those gifts by faith. And even those who had those gifts could and did sin. Obviously, they were human beings. Paul said, I buffet my body daily and bring it under subjection, lest I, having preached to others, I myself might be a castaway. And listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, there's that miraculous faith there, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me. Nothing. The ability to perform miracles in the early church did not secure one's salvation. Those who could do so were still human beings. And so that would be a false premise to conclude that, well, look what we can do, therefore God must approve of me. No, that would be a false conclusion. But let me ask you this. What are the most prevalent false premises in our time today? Well, there are still those who claim they can do miracles. That's a false premise, obviously. But what about other false premises in religion today? Well, there's the false premise that faith alone will save. And that's a prevalent false premise. There's the false premise that the church of our Lord is not essential to salvation. That one can simply have the church of his choice or the, no church if he chooses no church. That's a... That's a possibility according to many. There is the false premise that sincerity alone will save. There's the false premise that the Bible means whatever you want it to mean to you. It's how you interpret it, what it means to you. These and many other false premises exist today in our time. And those false premises produce and perpetuate false practices. All false premises will lead to false practices. 
And false practices produce also and perpetuate false peace. And that gets us back to those standing before the judgment and saying, Lord, didn't we not do this? Did we not do that? Depart from me. I never knew you. You who what? You who practice lawlessness. That point is evident in the text with which we began this morning in Matthew 7, where those mentioned in verse 22 plead their case at the judgment. They're pleading their case. However, Jesus tells us what they will hear. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And oh, there's so many passages in the New Testament that point up the importance of a proper practice. Listen to 1 John 1, 6. John says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, there's practice. We walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We lie and do not practice the truth if we say we have fellowship, but our lives do not harmonize with that profession. We walk in darkness. In 1 John 3 and verse 10, John writes, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. And then again, in Romans 1, 29 through 32, Paul writes of many being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who, listen to it, those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only those who practice those things, but those who approve of those who practice them. How much approval do we have going on today of those who practice homosexuality? How much approval is there today in our society of those who practice some of the things that are mentioned here, the sexual immorality, we have far too much of it, far too much of it. There are corporations, companies who have taken it upon themselves to have as their agenda a pro-homosexual agenda where they are not just staying out of it, as the American Family Association quite often wants them to do, remain neutral in the culture war, as they call it. It's more than culture war, though, isn't it? It's a matter of sin versus not sin, no sin. And yet they are aggressive in their endorsement of it. It's sad indeed. Those who practice lawlessness will be lost. Should we love and do we love those who are involved in those practices? Indeed, we do. We love the sinner, but we must never stop hating the sin. No matter what our society tells us, no matter what everyone else in society does, no matter how they seek to rationalize it, no matter how they seek to characterize those of us who stay with the book and oppose it as we should and do so in the right Christian spirit, some things do not 
change. You know what we have to come to the realization about is that this book is definitive. It's definitive. It is not a gray area document. It's black and white when it comes to sin and the practice of sin and the endorsement of those who practice it. And despite the growing number of those who are deceiving themselves, rationalizing and removing the Bible from the discussion. There was an article in the paper today. I haven't read the article, but Janice pointed out to me the headline on the perspective uh, section of the paper. And what was it advocating? Get the Bible out of the discussion of homosexuality. Get the Bible out of the discussion. Leave it out. Leave it out. That's where we are. That's where we are. The point is you can't leave the Bible out of any discussion that is spiritual in nature and that impacts your eternal existence. Only the Lord, only the Lord is going to be able to number the Naamans who are standing at the judgment crying with one voice, Behold, I thought. Behold, I thought. Behold, I thought all good people would be saved. The Lord may remind them of Cornelius in Acts 10 and 11. He was a good man. They just didn't come any better than Cornelius. He gave alms to the people. He prayed to God always. He had a good reputation among the Jews. And yet, that man had to hear the gospel and had to obey it or be lost. The Lord may remind those who say, but I thought all good people would be saved. He may have to remind them of Cornelius or of this text we began with today, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Lord, didn't we cast out demons and prophesy? Didn't we do all these things? And then there are Naamans who will say, Behold, I thought faith alone would save me. And to them the Lord may have to say, Did you never read what James wrote? In James chapter 2 where he concluded in effect by saying, You see then, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only? Or again he may ask them, Did you not read Luke 6.46 where I said, Why call me Lord, Lord? And do not do the things which I say. How many Naamans will stand at the judgment and say, Behold, I thought baptism was non-essential to my salvation. The Lord would only have to remind them of one very clear text where he said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned, along with all the other examples in the book of Acts of those who did that very thing. On the other hand, there may be Naamans at the judgment who will say, Behold, I thought baptism would save me. I thought once I did that, I was fine. To them the Lord may say, Did you never read 1 Peter 2, verse 2? As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby... The American Standard adds unto salvation. Did you never read that growth is a part of the Christian life? Did you never read Revelation 2 verse 10, Be faithful unto death, 
and I'll give you the crown of life. Did you not understand Ephesians 2.10? Where Paul reminds Christians that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What about those at the judgment who may say, Behold, I thought worship would save me. Did you never read John 4.24? God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, did you not understand that mechanics will avail nothing? Mechanics will avail nothing at all if the mind is not engaged in the worship. And by the same token, a devoted mind is not sufficient to save apart from the proper acts of worship that God has set forth in His Word. In other words, practices may be false because of wrong attitudes involved or wrong actions involved. All you have to do is look at 1 Samuel 15, 10-24, and there Saul was to destroy all of the Amalekites, remember? And he spared some for a good reason, he said. We were going to offer these to the Lord. We had good intentions, but that was a wrong action. Then you read Revelation 2, 1 through 5, concerning the church at Ephesus. And they had the right actions. They wouldn't tolerate false doctrine. They wouldn't hear Anything that was false. Stood against error. But he said, nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. There's the attitude. From Scripture, Old Testament, and New, we can see that practices may be false because of the wrong attitudes or the wrong actions themselves. Doing the will of the Father produces a peace that is not a false peace, but one that's pure, one that's perfect. But false prophets and false promises and false premises and false practices produce a false peace that will lead those who have embraced that kind of peace to perdition. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Those words of Paul were written to those who had done the will of the Father by becoming Christians. How does one do that? By a faith in Christ that will lead you to repent of your sins and confess Him to be the Christ and then to be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. It's that simple but essential plan of salvation that brings about the peace that surpasses understanding. You must believe that Jesus is who He claimed to be or die in your sins, John 8, 24. Jesus made that clear. You must repent of your sins or perish eternally, Luke 13, 3. You must confess Him to be the Christ so that he will in turn confess you before the Father as he stated himself in Matthew 10, 32. And as we've already seen, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. As Jesus stated it as recorded in Mark 16, 16. 
These Philippians to whom Paul wrote those words about the true peace were continuing to do the will of the Father by working and worshiping according to that revealed will, and so must we if we're to have the hope of eternal life. What about you this morning? Are you saved or are you self-deceived? That's a vitally important question. Saved or self-deceived? Peace, perfect peace, or false peace? Behold, I thought, will not be an acceptable defense at the judgment. Because the Lord will say, behold, you should have known. You had the will of my Father. We encourage you to obey that will now as we stand to sing.